This is uh, week number 33 in our discussion of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 8, and in chapter 8, Daniel has his second vision that's given in the book. You remember this is in uh, approximately two years after the first vision is given. This is in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar as king of Babylon. So still approximately 10 years from the end of the Babylonian reign when the Seleucid would come in and take over. But um, this vision that Daniel has, uh, he sees himself in the city of Susa, which is about 250 miles to the uh, east of Babylon. It's over by the river Yule. And uh, Daniel is apparently outside of the city because things are happening around the banks of the river which was to the east of the city. And so he first sees this, in this vision, he sees uh, a ram come up. And this ram has two horns. Uh, One of them is higher than the other horn. And later in verse 20, we're explicitly told by uh, Gabriel that this ram represents Medo-Persia. And the one horn being higher than the other uh, because the Persians were greater than the Medians were. And so this is the joined um, nation or kingdom of uh, the Medo-Persians. And this, this whole vision that Daniel has here um, takes a portion of what he saw in his first vision, the second and third kingdoms, and then it expands what happens. Because after this ram comes on the scene, and he's great, and no one is able to withstand him, Um, then a a goat comes on the scene. And this goat has a conspicuous horn between its eyes. And later in in this same chapter in verse 21, Daniel is explicitly told that this goat represents the Greeks. And the conspicuous horn represents the first king of the Greeks. Now, not that uh, Alexander the Great was the first king of the Greeks, but he was the first great king of the Greeks. And so uh, this represents the time from Alexander the Great forward is this this goat. You remember the goat came and it knocked down the ram, broke the horns of the ram, meaning killing the kings of the Medo-Persians, and then throwing the goat, I mean the ram to the ground and stomping on it. So this is Alexander the Great overcoming and destroying the Medo-Persian nation, and then he went on to destroy many other kings and many other nations, but in this specific vision, overtaking the Medo-Persians. And as soon as he had done that, he magnified himself, uh, you know, became great, and then it says uh, immediately, really, the horn was broken, the conspicuous horn. And that's the death of Alexander the Great in 323 B.C. And so out of that, It then says that four other horns arose. And this is the splitting of the uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom among some of his generals. You remember that um, there were four of those primarily. Later, as they war and they battle, a couple other people take over little tiny territories. But in general, there were four of these um, uh, generals. There was uh, Cassander... There was Lysichemus, there was uh, Seleucus, and there was Ptolemy. 
And so these are the four kings that come up. They're well documented in history, if you want to go read it, out of Alexander the Great's kingdom. And then um, Daniel goes on to say, out of one of these, meaning out of one of those four kingdoms, there arose a small horn that became very great. And that's kind of where we left off last week. So we'll pick up this morning. We'll begin reading in verse 8 to review just a little bit of what I just said. And we won't go very far. Okay, we'll get down to um, into verse um, 14. And we may not get all of that done because there's a lot that we need to talk about here. And to make sure that we, we get chapter 8 aligned with chapter 7 because there is some linkage and there's some things that are similar and so we'll talk about those and figure out exactly what's going on so beginning in Daniel chapter 8 in verse 8 there the scripture reads then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly but as soon as he was mighty the large horn was broken And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall down to the earth and fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled he said to me for 2300 evenings and mornings then the holy place will be properly restored okay this is what we'll try and walk through this morning we looked at verses um 9 and 10 last week and you remember this is where uh, out of one of the four kingdoms of the Greeks we have a small horn that becomes mighty and it says that he goes to the east he goes to the north and he goes to the south now the only kingdom of the Greeks that that could possibly represent would be that of the Seleucids okay because they possessed uh, Macedonia a good part of it They possessed uh, all the Mesopotamia. They possessed uh, all of India. They possessed all of Palestine, Syria. All that land between Macedonia all the way down to the Gulf belonged to the Seleucids. Okay, now off to their uh, west would have been the Ptolemies, which would have been mainly in Egypt. So the only guy who could go north, south, um, and uh, east and to the beautiful land would be the Seleucids. So this kingdom that's being talked about here is the Seleucid kingdom, and which is one of the four which go on for several hundred years after Alexander the Great, um, ultimately defeated in part by the Romans. And so um, 
we're talking about a king, a horn, which always in Daniel represents kings, who come out of the Seleucid people. Okay, and we talked about this. When it says that he reached to the sky, that's not literal language, right? Because this is an earthly king. This is a human king. This is not a supernatural king or one that comes out of the heavens or one that comes out of the pit or any of that. This is a human being, is this king. Okay, so he can't reach to the sky That's or reach to the host of heaven. That's a figurative speech, just... Um, again, equaling how exceedingly great he became. And likewise, when it says that he caused some of the host to fall and some of the stars to fall, that's not talking about literal stars, and it's not talking about angels in the heavens uh, falling to the earth or any of that, because regular human beings can't do that. They don't have that kind of power. So this, again, is superlative language, it's figurative language, and we looked at several places. We looked in uh, Genesis chapter, was it um, 15, Genesis chapter uh, 22, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, Exodus chapter um, 12, where it speaks of the people of Israel, of Jacob, being uh, like the stars of heaven or being the stars or being the host of, of the Lord. Those types of language are used often to describe the Jewish people. So when it says he caused uh, part of the host and the stars to fall to the earth, it's talking about the Jews. And so this king that rose out of the Seleucids overcame the Jews. He uh, trampled many of them, meaning he killed many of them. Okay, so that's the battle that we're talking about, is a Greek, or out of the Greek kingdom, the Seleucids, out of the Seleucids, a king who goes against the Jews. So that's what Daniel is seeing. That's what he's talking about. That's what this vision is mainly about because from here to the end, we talk about this little horn. We get more description about what his actions and his uh, his motivations are. And then ultimately, we get the interpretation that's given that pretty much equals um, what we've talked about. Now, I'll tell you, I struggle with this vision First of all, because it's difficult, to say the least, this is a difficult vision. But even more than that, I struggle because I, I want to jump ahead to the interpretation. As a matter of fact, I almost have to in order to teach the part we're in now because there's things that don't make any sense unless you go look at the interpretation, such as we know this is uh, Greek and we know it's the Medo-Persians, right? Because of verses 20 and 21, which give explicit definition of that. Okay, there are other explicit definitions that are given that we have to kind of pull back in. So I find myself going ahead when in reality I like to walk through verse by verse, but not able to. And then we have to jump back to chapter 7 to make some comparisons. So that's what we're going to do today. Okay, we're going to go, we're going to look at some of the things that are given in 8, and I will give you some uh, extra biblical references because they shed light on what's going on. And it's fine to go extra-biblical. You understand that, right? I'm going to go into the Apocrypha, and that's fine. I'm going to go explicitly into 1 Maccabees, and not for uh, any um, doctrine or not for, uh, to correct the, the Scriptures, but to give historical perspective, okay? Because that's what the Apocrypha does. The Apocrypha was looked at by the Jews of the um, first couple of centuries 
and distinctively decided not to be part of the canon. Now, those same people who were making those decisions distinctively did include Daniel in the canon of Scripture. Okay, so all the debate about was it written in the 2nd century B.C. and all of that, you have to understand that the people who were there when the forgery was supposedly made decided that it was an ancient book that should be put into the canon. And who better than they would have known, right? And we'll talk about it, not this week and probably not next week, but maybe the week after that, of why that makes no sense that these guys would have accepted um, uh, um, uh, um, an unbiblical book to be included in the canon, which they consciously made decisions about these things. It's not like it was just so whimsical or whatever. No, there, there were councils that made decisions. And so we'll talk about, wow, that's a crazy thought to think that a forgery would have been included because it goes against everything that happens in history at that time. So we'll talk about that on down the road. But um, anyway, we're going to head there some this morning as we talk about this. So we pick up in verse 11, okay, because we looked at 9 and 10 last week. So in verse 11, Daniel wrote, Then I kept looking because of the sounds of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking, sorry, wrong chapter. Thank you. You should go, David, David, wrong chapter, right? Verse 11, it even magnified, it magnified itself. Now, we're, we're talking about what? What is the it? The little horn, right? That becomes exceedingly great. It magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. All right, now, New American Standard uses commander, as the, um, as the description of who he says he's equal to, your translation uses whom? Prince, okay. And, and prince and commander are both good translations, okay? This, this word is used um, often in Scripture. Um, it's not just used a couple of times or just used by Daniel. It usually denotes um, the chief person, the head of a group, um, that type of um, leadership. And so if you use commander, you use prince. Now, I personally think that prince is probably the best translation because if you have a New American Standard, if you look down in verse 25, this exact same word is translated as prince. Okay, so this word is used a couple of times through here, and it just means the, the one who is in charge. All right, now... When it says that this uh, it magnified itself to be equal with the prince, okay, what is this horn doing? I mean, literally, what is he doing? Well, NIV says prince of host, and if you translate host as the great armies of heaven, then in that sense, he's a commander of the armies. Okay, um, of heaven. You're right, of heaven. All right, now, I'm, I'm not going to put anybody down, and I'm not going to say anything bad, okay? NIV. Some of you have been in my class for a long time and have heard this before. NIV is not a literal word-by-word translation. You understand that, right? 
It is a dynamic equivalent, okay, which is where the world or the interpreters of Scripture began to slide. Dynamic equivalent, and if you, a long time ago, when Zondervan had their, this on their website, they've now taken it down, and I understand why. It used to say this, that where possible, word for word, and where not, thought for thought. Now, that brings the, the translator into the realm, right? Because whose thoughts? His thoughts. Now, there was a group, there's a committee who did the NIV, just like there was for the NAS and just like there was for the ESV. But their, their mantra, their in translation was, we'll do this word for word where we can. And where we can't, we'll all agree on what it means, and that's what we'll write. So you have to be careful with NIV. NIV is the best of the dynamic equivalents that is out there. And so in many places, NIV is fine, dead on. But in some places, they're giving you what they think it means. So now, not to say that the ESV and the NAS never do that, because they clearly do. Okay, but their goal and their aim was word for word. And that's what they tried to do. ESV, not so much. I mean, NIV, not so much. Their goal was to give you the thoughts of Scripture. And so you have to be a little careful. Now, I'm not putting anybody down. What is the, what is the literal translation of that word, then? You wouldn't have of the hosts there. Okay? Um, so It is, but... And just take it for what it's worth, okay? Just be careful. This is what I would do. Yeah, this is what I would do. As you study scripture... Use multiple translations. And I usually use three or four different ones, and NIV is one of them. So, but just don't use one. Go ahead, John David. You're talking specifically about subheaven, right? Yes. Yes. Right. Of heaven, right. And this host relates back to who Amy trampled, right? Some of the host was thrown to the earth and trampled. So you have to be careful. As you walk through these things, and don't, don't put your thoughts into Scripture. Let Scripture put thoughts into your mind. Okay? Just be careful about that. Not that any of the things that you've said bother me a lot. Just be careful. Okay? And use multiple translations because no one is exactly right. And if you're, um, if you're studied, then use the original. Okay? But I doubt there's very many of us in here who can do that including me. And so I have to use thesauruses and, and um, uh, study aids. Not many, but a few. Okay? When you are translating from one language to another, right. you cannot translate word for word because it wouldn't make sense. That's true, especially when you get to things like idioms or whatever. So you have to study those things. And what did they, what did they really mean? But you can get very close in translating word for word most of the time. And, and the, the, the be- three best translations, okay? David's opinion. In this order. <laughs> I would go King James. New, New King, well, that's not a translation, right? New King James, then the ESV, then the NAS. Now, some of our elders would switch the NAS and the ESV, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. But that's why I teach out of the NAS, Okay. 
New King James is pretty good. I mean, it's... In my opinion, in my opinion, which is the best of the three, the NASB. Right. But there are many people, there are many people today who would go to ESV. Now, we are not King James only people, right? But there's a whole group that is. We're not going to, we don't have a dog in that hunt and we're not going to go there. Okay. Because all three of those translations, and I study out of all of them, are good. And then occasionally I'll read the NIV also. Okay, so um, anyway, just take that for what it's worth. That's not in my lesson, but uh, anytime I hear NIV brought up, you just need to be careful. And, you know, there's a reason why Zondervan took that off their website, because I've looked for it since then, and it's not, no longer there. Why did they take that down? Because there are a lot of people like us who would oppose that, right? Thought for thought idea. So that's why they took it down. Go ahead. Just a question for you. On verse 9, um, out of one of them came forth a rather small one, which we see straight toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Right. South and east of what? Just in general, south and south east. But you could go to Susa and... It's a directional indicator, but directional... You could go to Susa, and south would be down to the ocean, right? And east would be all the way across India, which... They clearly did. And then to the beautiful land would be back to the Mediterranean. Israel, yeah, Jerusalem. 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 Okay. Canaan. Just curious, like, what yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, and they did. They ruled all that region, including the region of Syria and up into Macedonia. So even to the north of Susa, they would have ruled. Nobody, I think the reason it's given that way is because nobody else ruled that area that came out of the Greek kingdom. It was undisputedly the Seleucids, okay? So, um, and they were the strongest kingdom, especially at the time in which this, is, this vision is taking place. Okay, go ahead, Chris. Um, so, are you saying that over in, um, in Daniel chapter 8, that people get hung up on the host of heaven, and they're thinking, this means angels? Yeah. You go to Genesis chapter 37. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, Joseph had a dream, mm-hmm. He said, listen to this. He said, uh, what is this dream you've had? Um, sorry, I'm trying to find it. Verse 9 of 37. He said, now I still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, lo, I have still had another dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Right. And when he related it to his brothers, they immediately knew. It was them. Yeah. Right. So that would, there would be a precedent. Right. Oh, absolutely. Right. Right, and, and there are other references, you know, so that's just <laughs> be careful, right? When you, when you read uh, the writings of men, be careful because there are lots of guys who would write that the stars are angels. I mean, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of people who write that. They're not right, but never the stars are somewhat angels. These are stars come from heaven, opens the bottom of the pit, and it says in... Okay, you're, you're in Revelation now. Yeah. We're we're in Greek, <laughs> right? So I mean, you're gonna be careful too. Oh, absolutely. But we're talking. We're talking about Greek, not not. Oh, no question, no question. Yeah, um, we'll talk about that when we get there, right? In this verse, it does not. Okay, go ahead. 
I, I'm really short on language because I don't speak food, I don't speak Greek. Right. I have three years French one. <laughs> that doesn't do much good, does it? That doesn't do much good. <laughs> I, uh, I have an issue uh, on the English. English. We talked about stars and posts. Right. Anytime the Jews are referred to as stars, it's an assembly. It's as a sure, star. Sure, sure, sure. Like a star. Right. But if you go to Job, right. we'll find out who are called stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I mean... and. Chapter 8 is hard, right. But, but realize what, what Daniel is saying are earthly kingdoms, earthly kings doing human things, okay, that refer, and we'll see this as the translation is given, to the end of the age, okay? But even at the end of the age, the agency in which these things are done are still through human kings, so in here, we're in Greek now. We're not in the fourth beast or the end of the age or anything. Daniel's telling you what he sees, then the interpretation will be given to him. And most of the interpretation talks about what is literally going to happen in, to the Jewish people during the Seleucid reign. Go ahead. Is that a follow? We have one in the room. We do. The first chapter of Daniel is written in Hebrew. Two through seven are written in Aramaic. Right. Now we're back into Hebrew. Hebrew. Right. Why is that? And you know what? I'm not going to allow him to answer because it's not his class. (laughs) (laughs) So you can ask him that later. Okay. So, back to Daniel, chapter 8. See, I can do that. <laughs> so, Daniel 8. Should have never gone there, should I? Verse 11. Wait, wait. Sorry. Yeah. One last time. On verse 10. On verse 10. Okay, it grew up to the host and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall into the temple. Right. Right. Okay, just a question for you. Do you think that there were angels in heaven that continued to, over the millennium, choose something other than God and fell into Satan's realm? And could those be the stars that fell to the earth? And Personally, no. And we'll talk about it explicitly when we get to Revelation where the stars are, a third of the stars fall, right? So we'll talk about it then. Okay, <laughs> Not now. Go ahead, Ransel. You talking? About, they fall to the ground. I mean, how does he do that to the earthly kingdoms? When it says that he throw, he, how did he do that to the uh, ram that he threw to the ground and then trampled it? Same way. I mean, he just said he destroyed them. He, he overcame them. He killed them. Is what he's trying to say. Okay, he sets himself to be equal to the commander or prince, right? Okay, now, we could go a lot of places 
And later that, instead of prince, we'll, uh, we'll use the word Messiah when we get over to chapter 9. So I do think that this is, um, is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how we translate it. You've got to go a lot of other places to get to that. But um, that's why your translation, well, if you have ESV, it doesn't. It uses a small C instead of, or a small P instead of a capital P, right? Is it capital there? Later it'll be small. Um, so they, they are not as bad about putting their ideas into Scripture. New American Standard uses a capital C to indicate this is God. I would agree with that because and notice something very clearly. He makes himself equal to the prince. Not what? Not greater than. Does he declare himself to be God? No. No. But if you read most of the commentators, they will say, oh, the, you know, it's very clear that the Antichrist, that the princes all through here declare themselves to be God, does not say that. So what does it mean when he sets himself to be equal to the prince? What, how, how would he do that? What would that look like? Command worship. Okay, command worship, not so much of himself. Because it's very clear that this commander, the literal person, worshipped Zeus and, and the moon god and did not declare himself to be God. So he had deities, they're just not the one true deity. So what does it mean when he said he made himself equal to be God? Destroyed the house that belonged to him. All right. Right, and the Jews, the, the Jews sacrifice on the altar for what purpose? <laughs> to worship and to honor God because he commanded it, right? And that's what he stopped. And then he himself didn't command worship, but took control of all of the things that would honor God that the Jews did and, and did disallow them to do those anymore and set up idols and commanded them to worship the idols. So he's replacing God, is what he's trying to do. Could it be too uh, the, the command of the host? I mean, when the when the state gives power to the Antichrist, he's equal to. Obviously, he takes all this power. He's equal to Antichrist. He took all this power, then he and he actually commands to be worship him, the Jewish people. It's very similar to what you're talking about here. But this. What kingdom is this? Greek. Greek. It's not the fourth beast. Okay. Well, well, all right, and we'll we'll look at that, okay? And that's one of my purposes today to look at chapter seven and eight and show you the similarities and the huge differences. Okay, that's where we're headed. But I have to get all these things on the table first, right? All right, so he's replacing the Jewish system of worship which honors the one true God, making himself equal to the commander of the prince, whatever word you want to use. So that's what he's literally doing. He's not saying worship me. doesn't say that at all. He actually sets up other gods that they're to worship, that he worships. So clearly not declaring himself to be God. Okay? Key point as you translate the eschatology scriptures. But there will be many. If you go read, be careful, because most say he, co- he declares himself to be God, even in this passage. In contrast to Nebuchadnezzar, who set up an image. 
right, for them to worship, right? Same reason here. The, Nebuchadnezzar's reason for setting up the image is to join all the people in worship of something so they would be united. Remember talking about that? He's trying to unify his, his kingdoms. Image of himself, or is this an image we just don't know what it is? Yes, it just says image. Yeah, it doesn't say of himself, it just says an image. It does. But his reason for doing that was to unify the people in worship. This king is doing the same thing, because, and we'll see some of it. As he declares for the Jews to worship, he also declares for all the other peoples to do the same thing. So it's not just limited to the Jews when he declares idols and to worship these idols. It's throughout his whole kingdom. Okay, but the Jews are clearly included. And here he's setting himself to be the commander of all these people. That you do what I tell you to do, not what you have been doing historically. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on here. Now, as you, you get on down to, um, it says that... Um, he removed the regular sacrifices, right? Now, what would that be? The regular sacrifices in the temple. What is that? Would it be the feasts? It's not the feasts. It's the daily sacrifices, right? And um, I'm looking as to where that... Exodus 29... Look at Exodus 29. This is part of the law, part of what God declared. 29, 38. Exodus 29, 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. This happened every day. The, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. That'll be important in just a minute. Okay? So this went on every day. Two one-year-old lambs, one sacrificed in the morning, one sacrificed in the evening as part of their worship. Okay? Every day, continuously, this happened. Okay? So this is what he's talking about when he stopped the regular sacrifices. He disallowed the Jews to do this anymore. Okay, this is the little horn that comes out of the Seleucid kingdom. All right, so he stopped the daily sacrifices. And then it says, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down, simply meaning that he took control of the temple. Okay, didn't destroy it, didn't tear it down. Okay, because that temple is still there when Jesus comes, right? Understand, this is the temple. This is what people call Second Temple Judaism, this is the temple that Zerubbabel built after they returned, okay? So we're looking into the future here. This is a prophecy because that hadn't happened yet. Zerubbabel hasn't gone back and rebuilt the temple yet. So we're clearly looking at the future. All right, now, and there's a reason that God gave this, and we'll talk about that eventually. But I just want to get through the details. And then it says in verse 12, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Okay, the host will be given over to it. Meaning what? 
the host referring to? The Jewish, the Jewish people. And if they're given over to him, what is it clear and true? He dominates. he dominates them. He reigns over them. He kills many of them. He is the prince over them. And there's no way you could deny that he was the prince over them because he was in control. Okay? So that's what it means when they were given over to him is that he's dominating the Jewish people in the future from when the time that Daniel wrote this, all right? So he will, um, and, and the reason all this happens is why. Why is all of this havoc and all of this destruction and all of this taking over of the sanctuary, why does it happen? This verse tells you why. What does it say? Because of transgression. These things happen. Whose transgression? The host, the Jews. And and what kind of transgression are we talking about? Idolatry, which was, you remember, what's the reason that the Babylonians overtook Jerusalem and drug the people off to Babylon? Because of the sins of their fathers, remember? It's very clear. And not only is it clear in Daniel, it's clear back in, um, in the Kings. First and Second Kings are clear that that's why the, the Jews were dominated. The same thing is going on here because of their lack of true worship of God, because of transgression, this is happening. So that means what is all this havoc that's going on? Use, give me a synonym for it. Judgment by whom? By God. Now, agree with that, disagree with that? This is judgment by God, because <laughs> this little horn is in the realm of mankind, Right? And who's the ruler of the realm of mankind? One of the major themes of Daniel, that God is. So anything that grows mighty in the realm of mankind to become a prince over the peoples is ordained by God. Whether we like him or not, it's still under the ordination of God. So this little horn that grows mighty is by the power or the ordination of God to judge the people of Israel. Kind of, kind of wild to think about because you think about how horrendous this is. And I'm getting ready to read to you just how horrendous this really was. So we just read, oh, they got trampled down, a few of them got killed. No, no. This is slaughter continuously for years. Okay, this goes on. This is this is not just a little bit of bad stuff happening. Realize to the Jews to not be able to offer the daily sacrifices, which they can't do today, is to not be able to worship God properly. Their whole existence is now shut down. And how can they be the special people of God if they can't worship him as he prescribed? So that's what's going on here. And this is the real motivation, and I will look at this in detail, of this little horn is to wipe out Judaism. That's what he's after here. 
He's, a, he's after changing the minds of the Jews like they did with the young Jews in Babylon when they brainwashed them for three years of education and languages and king's food and all of that. That was to make them non-Jewish. That's the same thing that's going on here. That's why he stops the daily sacrifices. Romans didn't do that. They never stopped the daily sacrifices until they ultimately came, and we'll talk about this in great detail, and destroyed the temple for different reasons. And we'll really talk about that a lot. Um, Blow your mind. Um, So that's what's really going on here. Now, like I said, I, I struggle with the literal, the prophecy, and what the prophecy means, and how do which goes first? Which do we take a look at? Okay, and so I want to look at the literal first, and for for no great reason, um, just because that's the way it flows in my mind. What this is a prophecy, a literal prophecy out of the Seleucid kingdom that came true, right? That's what that's what he's prophesying here. Okay, so. Um, I did some reading this week and I went extra biblical. I went to the Maccabees, which are good historical documents. They're not authoritative. Okay, they're not part of the canon, but there's a lot of history in it that you can, you can gain from. You can go read Josephus or Tacitus and get a lot of good historical information. And you have to have some of that to be able to make some decisions. You have to at least understand history in a global sense. Okay, and so I went and I read some of the Maccabees. And let me just describe to you what's going on. And this is at the hand of Antiochus Epiphanes, right? When he came against um, Jerusalem. And you, if you go to the first Maccabees, the very first chapter, he describes these things in that chapter. And then you go on... And in chapter 4, we're at the end of all this destruction in the Maccabees. And there's a lot that happens in between. There's the revolt and the wars and a lot of stuff goes on. But historically, um, this is one of the resources that you can go read. Okay, so I, you know, I don't know if you have a copy of the Apocrypha or not. It's fine too. Okay, it's not sacrilegious to have that book. And you can read it, and that's not against the scriptures either. You just have to understand, as you read these things, what's true? What's your mindset got to be? What's true? That scripture trumps it in every case. Always. Scriptures are always true. The Maccabees are sometimes true, mostly true. But maybe not as accurate as the scriptures. So always, the scriptures always trump everything because they are everywhere, all places, true. But over in 1 Maccabees, in chapter 1, and down in 51 and 52, this is what it says. And it's talking about um, Antiochus commanding things in, in uh, Jerusalem. And it says, in the selfsame manner, he wrote to his whole kingdom, not just to the Jews, and appointed overseers over all the people, commanding the cities of Judea to sacrifice city by city. And that's not to sacrifice to God Almighty, that's to sacrifice to the idols he had set up in all of these. Then many of the people 
were gathered unto them. This is talking specifically about the Jews. To wit, everyone that forsook the law. And so they committed evils in the land. So under the rule of Antiochus, what did most of the Jews do? They submitted to what he commanded them to do. And they worshipped to idols, burned incense to idols, sacrificed meat to idols, all of these things that Antiochus commanded them to do after he had stopped the daily sacrifices, after he had forbid reading of the Torah, after he forbid anything associated with Judaism, including circumcision, all of these things he stopped. He wanted them to be non-Jews. That's what his goal was. And here he's commanding them and they follow his command. Why would they do that? Why would the Jews... Now, realize the Jews were taken to Babylon in 605. Seventy years later, they were given a decree to return. Years after that, another decree. Years after that, another decree. So they had gone back. Okay, Antiochus came in 170 AD. The Jews went back in between four and five hundred so they've been there for hundreds of years by the time we get to this prophecy and they've been sacrificing in the temple that Zerubbabel rebuilt okay so why here when the Seleucid king comes in and ransacks and stops everything why do they do what he says to do why would they do that school they didn't know anything <laughs> <laughs> they didn't <laughs> why would they do this there's a good reason that people would do this I think it's the reason that many people on the planet will <laughs> they don't want to die Okay, because Antiochus also declared at the same time that he said all of those things, he comes down and he says, and whoever would not do according to the commandment of the king, he said he should die. So the penalty for not doing what Antiochus said was death. You were going, you're done. And the way this worked is on the 25th of each month, the commanders of the Saludians would have a sacrifice on the altar, the, above the altar of God. And on that sacrifice, they would kill anybody who had been caught in the previous 30 days disobeying the command. So every month, month after month. Now let me read. This is horrendous. And this is hard to, to think about. But I'm going to read it to you anyway. Okay, because, again, this is out of Maccabees, chapter 1. And it says, And who, whosoever was found with any book of the Testament. So just to be found with a copy of the Torah. Or if he consented to the law, the king's commandment was that they should put him to death. Thus they did by authority unto the Israelites every month to as many as were found in the cities. So if they caught you, you were going to be killed. Now the five and twentieth day of the month they did sacrifice upon the idol altar which was upon the altar of God. So this is in the temple above the altar of God on a new altar that they had built. 
at which time, according to the commandment, they put to death certain women that had caused their children to be circumcised. And they hanged the infants about their necks and rifled their houses and slew them that had circumcised them. So they didn't only kill the women and the children, they killed the people who did the circumcision on the altar in the temple on the 25th of the month. Howbeit, many in Israel were fully resolved and confirmed in themselves not to eat any unclean thing. So there are some true Jews. Wherefore, they chose rather to die that they might not be defiled with meats and that they might not profane the holy covenant. So then they died. They were killed. And there was very great wrath upon Israel. So think about this. Every month, a few people of Faith Community Church are dragged into the temple and sacrificed on the altar. And next month, the same thing happens. And the next month, the same thing happens. So as you try to stand firm in your faith, you're becoming one of a smaller and smaller and smaller group of people. Because every month, they're killing your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your fathers, your children, your close associates. They're being slaughtered every month. And this goes on for six years. Every month. So you got 72 times that some of your kindred, some of your friends, some of your loved associates are sacrificed on the altar above the altar of God. And this goes on month after month after month after month with no seeming end in sight. Oh, this is a horrendous test of faith. And this, this continues. So why would some of these Israelites bow? You can see why. Because they weren't firmly resolved. Yeah. But they didn't have that, did they? Right. But you know what they did have? They had the book of Daniel, who puts a limit on this. And this is what Maccabees used to rally the Jews to fight against Antiochus, was the book of Daniel, because they had the prophecy. Forgery, right? Someone just wrote it, and then they said, hey, look at this, right? Yeah, you're going to die because of this. No, not so much. They had the book of Daniel. And that's what he used to rally them against Antiochus. Okay, keep going. You see how horrendous this is? I mean, this is not the way we think about what's going on. There's a little bit of judgment. No, no. This is people being slaughtered and sacrificed month after month after month on the 25th. You knew what day you were going to die if you got caught. You're going to die on the 25th because that's when they did the sacrifices. Maybe. Well, well, one day maybe we'll talk about that. All right, now, it's clear that there are comparisons between chapter 7 and chapter 8, right? I mean, the things that are happening in chapter 8, we've seen before in chapter 7, some of them. All right, so I wanted you to compare for me a couple of these things. All right, this is comparing the little horn that came out of the fourth beast in chapter 7 to the little horn that came out of the third kingdom 
in chapter 8. We're staying as close as we can to what it says. All right, so in chapter 8, verse 10, it says, It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host of the stars to fall to the earth and trampled it, and it trampled them down. Where is that in chapter 7? All right, verse 7, which says, don't, I mean, I'll, I'll take your input. Verse 7, after this I kept looking, night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large teeth that devoured and crushed, um, trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. Okay, so there's destruction going on there. Where Go more specific than that. You could go to 19, but going down to 21, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, caused some of the stars and some of the hosts to fall to the earth and trampled them. And then look on down in um, verse 25 of 7. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. Do you be worn down if month after month some of your friends, some of your associates, some of your brothers and sisters were killed on the altar? Yeah. Go ahead. We're on the third beast in chapter 8, and this is the fourth beast. Absolutely. So we're looking at similarities between the third, the horn that comes out of the one of the four kingdoms that comes from the third compared to the little horn of the fourth. Because okay, there are similarities. Keep going. In 8.11, it says, It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander or the prince of the host. Okay, where is that in chapter 7? 7. Look at verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. doesn't say he makes himself equal, but he's certainly puffing himself up. Okay, so he's elevating himself. Now, if you look on down into, again, verse 25, where we just were in chapter 7, he will speak out against the Most High. That's what he's doing when he makes himself equal to the prince. He's, I'm, I'm in command now. God no longer is. Doesn't say he makes himself equal. Doesn't say he makes himself God. He makes himself equal and he takes the place of God. Okay, doing the same thing that the little horn does in chapter 7. But you're not comparing this horn with the, the one you just talked about in chapter 8. They, they do similar things. But you're not saying this is the one. Well, we'll get there, right? Let's keep looking at the similarities. 8.11, where it says that it even magnified itself to be equal to the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice, and the place of the sanctuary was thrown down. Remove the regular sacrifice. Where's that in chapter 7? In 25, where it says what? He intended to make alterations in times and law times every morning and every evening you'll sacrifice a lamb on the altar 
He's going to alter that. The laws, you have to do these things in Judaism. You can't practice Judaism or I'll kill you. Changing the times and the law. So there are clearly similarities between the little horn in chapter 7 and the little horn in chapter 8. But there are also glaring differences. What's the most obvious one? You've already said it a couple of times. Because chapter 8 is talking about the Greeks and the little horn that comes out of one of the four horns, which is the Seleucids. Clearly, someone coming out of the Seleucid dynasty. Okay? I don't think there's much denial about that. I don't think you'll find many people who disagree with that. Okay? Now, chapter 7. Where does this horn come from? Out of the fourth beast, whether it be Rome or something else. It's not the Greeks. Right? Because the Greeks have already been trampled down. So they're clearly coming from two different dynasties, two different times, two different peoples. Okay? So the horns do similar things, think similar things, but come from two different times and two different peoples. All right? What's another more subtle that we haven't talked about yet difference between these two? One of ten, that's a, a difference. Also, how long, given in Daniel chapter 7, does the destruction go on for? Chapter 7. Time, times, and half a time. And we looked at all of that, right, compared to the chapter 12 and the 1290 days, and that's three and a half years. Verse 14 of chapter 8, how long does this go on for? 2300 days right which is 6 plus some years so the times don't match up okay now because it's 10 after 12 after we won't talk about the 2300 days today but I will talk about it next week and this is hard to say it mightily this is hard okay and I did it I'm ready to talk about it. We just don't have time. Okay, so we will try to explain the 2,300 days. And you can go read some this week and become more confused, okay? Because there are, there are very few who agree with each other on this. But we'll make, we'll make some clarity out of it, okay? So that's where we'll pick up next week is in verse 14 with 2,300 days. Thanks for your time.